I want the truth. Don't get me wrong. I hope they're happy, and I hope they're happy with me, and I hope they have gratitude, but I want the truth. Because if they're not being real, there is no relationship. If I don't get the truth, then I don't get them. So if they're mad, I want to know. If they're sad, if they're scared, I want to know. If they're confused, I want to know. Because I want the truth, even when it's messy. I want to hear it. I remember a few years ago, my daughter was doing something. I think she was coloring at the table, if I remember right. And she asked me a question about responsibility as she got older. But it was framed as, you know, Dad, I really want more freedom to do X, Y, Z. And, and I launched into some brilliant monologue about freedom and responsibility, probably from Spider-Man or something, you know, something that I heard and said, well, Lily, you know, when you get older, you're going to have to demonstrate that you're responsible to get more freedom, et cetera. And as I started talking to her, she, she looked down and she started, you know, she already had a, a piece of paper in front of her and she started drawing. And so as I'm finishing up my brilliant speech, she holds up the piece of paper and it says boring across it. <laughs> How's that for the truth? Like, wow, shot to my ego. But with my kids, again, and most of you parents, you, you would agree with this, if not all of you, you want the truth even when it's messy. In fact, I could say it this way. I want the mess. Now, when you look through the pages of Scripture, we see a God, our Heavenly Father, who wants the mess. The Bible is filled with men and women who cry out to God in all kinds of messy ways. A third to one half of the Psalms, depending on how you categorize them, are Psalms of lament. They are songs and poems where people of God are crying out to God in grief and anguish and angry venting about other people and complaining to God about the way things are and how God's not doing enough about it. David, the primary author of the Psalms, he is called a man after God's own heart, and he wrote more messy words in the Bible than anybody else. Is there a greater affirmation that God wants the mess than that? David, a man after my own heart. And yet, many of us struggle to believe that what I just said is true that God wants the mess. And I know that because of the way we pray, the way that we talk to God, the way that we talk about God. We, we, we struggle to really believe that. C.S. Lewis has a brilliant quote. He, he says this. He says, We should bring to God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. We should bring to God what is in us, not what ought to be in us. You see, I think many of us, if not most of us, we operate with the oughts. You experience something awful in your life. There's, there's a tragic event. Something happens, and you doubt God's goodness. I mean, after all, if God is good and God is God, how could he allow something like this to happen? But then you think, I ought to never doubt God's goodness, 
And so you minimize those feelings and you never really bring them up to God. Or you experience betrayal or hurt from someone else and, and you're frustrated and you work through forgiveness. Perhaps you even entrust them to God. You release your right to retaliate, but you find yourself in that relationship that's been fractured still feeling angry later on. And you think, I ought to not be angry. I mean, I ought to love them. And I feel like I hate them. And so I'm not going to be honest about that with God. I shouldn't feel this way. Or there's a loss in your life. You know, you, you lose a loved one or a job or a dream. Just the realization that your life is never going to be what you thought it would be. And you're sad about that. And you're broken about that. And maybe you grieve and you pour out your heart to God. But then months later, maybe years later, you're still dealing with that grief. But you think, you know, I've prayed about this so much. I ought to have just moved on by now. God's already heard what I have to say. And so you don't bring your heart to God. See, many of us, we operate with the oughts being what guides us. But here's the, here's the problem. The oughts, we ought to do, we ought to think, we ought to feel, they keep us from telling the truth. God wants the truth. God wants the mess. John Ortberg, he says it well. He says this, it's better to be an honest mess before God than a dishonest saint. It's better to be an honest mess before God than a dishonest saint. But if it's hard for us to be messy before God, what can help us? How can we grow in that area? How can we learn? Well, the Psalms in the Old Testament, they are our guide because nowhere else in Scripture do we see the messy side of spirituality explored as we do in the Psalms. If you were to sum up the Psalms teaching on this subject, Psalm 62, 8 does it well. It says, trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. I want you to note, he doesn't say, pour out your positive thoughts and gratitude to God. Pour out your heart, whatever's in there. Pour it out. You see, the Psalms teach us how to bring our hearts to God, warts and all, and how to be honest about it, and how to process those experiences and those emotions with God, because we have a God who wants the mess. And so we're going to be leaning into, what does this mean to pour our hearts out to God? We're going to be leaning into this over the next several weeks looking at how do we bring to God our grief and our loneliness and our fear. And today, we're, we're launching into this, and we're, we're starting in the deep end. And if you have your Bible, I want to invite you to turn there to Psalm 88. Psalm 88. This psalm is, without a doubt, one of the darkest chapters in the Bible. In fact, as you heard Mary reading it a moment ago, maybe you thought, is she reading the wrong passage? Like, what is this doing in a church service? Maybe you've read this and thought, what is this doing in my Bible? It's a fair question. Walter Brueggemann, he's a scholar, he divides the Psalms into three categories. And he comments, and this is so brilliant, I think, his insight that these represent more than just types of literature, that the, the types 
of Psalms are actually, they're the types of seasons we go through spiritually. So you have Psalms that are Psalms of orientation. That's what he calls them. Orientation, where life is good. Skies are sunny with a high of 75. And God's presence is seen, felt, and celebrated in my life. I know what God's doing, and man, this is good. And then there are Psalms, and there are seasons of disorientation where life is not good, where it feels like you're in a rainstorm without an umbrella and your circumstances are formidable and the heavens are silent and you don't know where God is or what he's doing. Disorientation. And then there's a third type of psalm called psalms of reorientation. And this is where I'm, I'm in this storm, but then all of a sudden the sun breaks through and God illuminates something, and, and I emerge from this storm and these clouds, I emerge with a new perspective, sometimes about my circumstances, but more often about God. I have been reoriented spiritually. And in our spiritual journey, for all of us today, we go through seasons of orientation, disorientation, and reorientation. What kind of psalm are we looking at today? Psalm 88 is a psalm of disorientation. And, and those words, the words of the psalm, so, you know, for some of you, this is where you're at. You know, maybe you walked through the doors of the church today, but really emotionally, spiritually, you felt like you just crawled in because you don't know what's going on and you, you feel like you're in chaos and you're doubting God's goodness. And this is just, this is where you are. And there's others of us who are not in that season and that's Okay. But again, if Brueggemann's right, and I think he is, if the Psalms represent our experience with God, all of us experience disorientation. That's why this Psalm is so helpful. Psalm 88 is a Psalm for us who have more questions than answers. Psalm 88, again, it's for those of us who find ourselves frustrated that, that, that God is not doing what we think he should do. What do we do when we find ourselves there? This psalm is so, so helpful. You know, the theme of the psalm, as we kind of get into this, Psalm 88, the theme of it is darkness. See the word darkness show up in verse 6, verse 12, verse 18. And that is what disorientation feels like. My dad worked at a furniture store, so growing up, every now and then I would go and, you know, Going with your dad to work can be kind of boring, but, but my dad's, his place of work was pretty cool to hang out because you, you could just sit on whatever couches and lazy boys you wanted to, and they had lots of TVs in these different showrooms. It was great. I'll never forget one day when I was sitting at Murphy's Furniture Gallery in one of those showrooms on a couch, and I was watching TV. All of a sudden, the power went out. The lights went dark. My dad had left, and he forgot about me, and on his way out, he turned off the power. My parents hate when I tell this story, <laughs> and I'm just, you know, telling a thousand people, but, you know, because they feel so guilty about it, but my dad forgot about me. In my experience that day, listen, that is, that is a lot like disorientation spiritually, where all of the sudden, you're in the dark, and you're, you're scared, you're confused, and worst of all, you're alone. And you feel forgotten about. That is where this psalmist is. That's what he's writing 
out of. Now, now for those of us in the room today, you know, we experience different types of darkness, and I think we see this in the psalm. Some of us, right now, we are experiencing what I would call outer darkness, where our circumstances are dark. Maybe you're grieving a loss right now, or you're struggling with infertility, or you're in a transition. Maybe anxiety has got its claws around your head, and depression is just flooding you, and you just don't know what's going on. But your circumstances are dark. And then there's another type of darkness that I would say in the psalm, it's inner darkness. It's not, it's not circumstances. It's, I feel like God's a million miles away. It's a, it's a spiritual emptiness. God's a million miles away, and I don't know what he's doing. I'm alone. Mother Teresa, she has a good quote where she talks about this kind of darkness. She says, when I try to raise my thoughts to heaven, there is such convicting emptiness that those very thoughts return like sharp knives and hurt my very soul. Love the word... It brings nothing. I am told God loves me, and yet the reality of darkness and coldness and emptiness is so great that nothing touches my soul. She is in disorientation. Disorientation. We're all bound to experience this in our journey of faith, what John of the Cross calls the dark night of the soul. So when life gets dark, for us, this psalm is incredibly helpful. We need what it has to say. I, I, I want to kind of walk through the structure of it, and then I'm going to help apply it to our lives. Beginning in verse 1, we, we, we see that the psalm begins with an affirmation of truth about God. Verse 1, Lord, you are the God who saves me. Literally, that phrase, you are the Lord God of my salvation. This is who you are. So it's an affirmation of who God is. And then there's a shift Day and night I cry out to you, may my prayer come before you. Turn your ear to my cry. So the psalmist, he says, day and night. In other words, constantly, God, I am crying out to you. And then when the psalmist says, turn your ear to me, some translations say, God, listen to me. The, the psalmist is saying, I'm talking to you and you are not paying attention. How many of you have ever had the experience of talking to somebody when they're on their phone? Some of you are like, this is my whole life. This is, I've got teenagers at home or whatever, and you're like, I just talk to people, and they're just looking down constantly, texting, doing whatever, and you're trying to have a conversation. And it's so frustrating, isn't it? That's exactly where this psalmist is. He feels like God is not paying attention to him. And so he says, turn, God, turn your ear to me. Look at me. And then he says this. He says, I am overwhelmed with troubles, and my life draws near to death. I'm counted among those who go down to the pit. I'm like one without strength. I'm set apart with the dead like the slain who lie in the grave. Now, this is such intense language. When he talks about going near to the grave, the, the Hebrew word is sheol. It's, it's the, the land of the dead in, in Hebrew thought and understanding. And then the psalmist, he says, God, you're the reason. Look at this, verse 6. He says, you, God, have put me in the lowest pit. In the darkest depths, your wrath lies heavily on me, and you've overwhelmed me with all of your waves. God, I'm suffering, and it's your fault. Have any of you ever been there? Have you ever felt that? I mean, we don't feel like we can say that, but have you ever been there? 
one of the things that's interesting in the Psalms, and I just think it's important to point out, is it seems like the psalmist has multiple personality disorder. You notice this? Verse 1, you are God of my salvation. We're like, yeah, that that's, sounds like a worship song I'd want to sing. Several verses later, I'm about to die and it's all your fault. And it's like, what happened? You know? One of the things we've got to realize today, and we will through this series, is that this, the Psalms describe what the spiritual life is like. That it is not this continual up and to the right movement where I'm in this continual state of spring and there's abundance and I'm bearing fruit and God's great. That's not the spiritual life. That's what we wish it was. The spiritual life is one day you're in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd, making me lie down in green pastures. And the next day you, you flip the page, Psalm 22, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? This is the spiritual life. We don't get to live in, in continual spring and summer. There's a season of winter that we all go through. And the reason why I think that's helpful, I mean, some of you are like, this is so depressing. Why are we talking about this? Listen, whether you are in a season of winter now or you will be, and that's all of us, we will be, it is so important for us to understand that those seasons, that this experience of disorientation is not bad. It's not because of sin. It is normal. It's just part of our spiritual lives. I want you to just think about this. This is incredibly freeing when you realize that Psalm 88, what we're looking at today, sometimes this is exactly what it feels like to be a Christian. And again, that can be depressing, but I see that as incredibly freeing to know that there is room in the Christian experience for this, that God has preserved in the pages of Scripture a guy who is in severe depression, and he's experiencing spiritual disillusionment, and he cries out his heartache, and God says, yes, this is what your experience is like as followers of Jesus, that, that, that for all of us, again, you're, you may not be there today, but there's something that this psalm points out that ought to resonate with us and give us freedom, like, okay, God knows, God knows that the human experience includes this. It includes disorientation. Now, the psalmist continues, and he, he's ramping up the intensity. It's already pretty intense. He says in verse 9, I call to you, Lord, every day, so God, just a reminder, every day I'm calling out to you. I spread out my hands to you. And then the psalmist starts inter interrogating God, it, it seems. The psalmist says, do you show your wonders to the dead? Did their spirits rise up and praise you? Is your love declared in the grave? Your faithfulness and in in destruction? These questions are, are not born out of curiosity, but anger, that the psalmist, he is ticked. And he's saying, God, I, I, I want to praise you, but I feel like I'm about to die and you're, you're to blame. Now, again, some of us, when we read this, it does come across as irreverent and maybe even offensive, like, whoa. 
This is where I draw the line. You are, you are fundamentally accusing God of wrongdoing. Again, it's in our Bible. But what I want to say to us today, and I think we need to hear this challenge, is that what the psalmist is doing here is actually an expression of faith. And you say, what do you mean? Well, if you look at his questions, the psalmist, he knows that God's love and faithfulness are real. That's why he's frustrated. If he didn't believe that, he wouldn't even be frustrated. So he knows there's something about God that's not showing up in his life. But the main reason I think that these questions in this psalm indicates this man's faith is because he is bringing it to God. The, 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 the word Lord appears four times. Notice he's bringing all of this to God. Some of you, many of you know the story of Job. In our Old Testament, Job is described as a righteous man, and then he experiences tremendous suffering, unlike many of us, if any of us will ever experience. And Job begins in chapter three of crying out to God, and he doesn't shut up for 30 chapters. I mean, he's just like, God, why is this happening? And, and he says some intense things to God that you know, are irreverent at best and accusatory and blasphemous at worst. And at the end of the book, and the whole time, Job's friends, they are trying to talk some sense into him and correct his faulty thinking and his faulty theology and his rude behavior. And at the very end of the book, God comes and reveals himself to Job. And then God speaks to these friends. And God says, I'm angry at you guys. And then he says this. This is so powerful. God says, my servant Job will pray for you, and I will accept his prayer and not deal with you according to your folly. And then he says this. You have not spoken the truth about me as my servant Job has. And if we're reading the book, we're like, God, do you know what Job has said about you? What do you mean? Spoken the truth. And yet God affirms it. God affirms Job's experience and says, yes, he is expressing something about me that you guys aren't. You guys are only talking about me. Job is talking to me. You see, this psalmist is taking everything to God. This disconnect between what he believes and what he's experiencing, he just brings it, the anger, the confusion, the sadness. And it's an expression of his faith that he would hang in there and say, God, I'm still coming. And this is so important because, again, I, I think for many of us in religious cultures, religious subcultures, we feel like we could not pray the words to this psalm. I mean, this is out of bounds for us. And again, some of us, we look at it and we say, well, verse 1, that's spiritually mature guy. And then verse 2 to 18, this is spiritually immature. I mean, he's gone off his rocker. It's all downhill after verse 1. And what I want to say us today and what I believe to be true is that spiritually mature psalm, the psalmist that spiritually mature things that he says is verse 1 to 18. The whole thing because he's bringing his heart to God. God, this is where I am. And then it continues and the pattern repeats again. It says, but I cry to you for help, Lord. In the morning, my prayer comes before you. I'm still crying out, God. Why, Lord, do you reject me and hide your face from me? From my youth, I have suffered and been close to death. 
I have borne your terrors and am in despair. And this is dark. He's basically saying, from my youth, you know, God, you've never been good to me. He's, he's doubting everything that he believed about God. And then it ends with verse 18. The psalmist, he says, you have taken from me friend and neighbor. Darkness is my closest friend. You know, almost all of the psalms end with a movement towards hope and gratitude, but not this psalm. Psalm 39 ends with the psalmist saying, would you just look away from me, God, so I can get some peace? It's pretty dark. And then Psalm 88, where it ends with, darkness is my closest friend. In fact, in Hebrew, the very last word of the verse is darkness. Now, what do you do with that? Again, it's like, why are we talking about this? This is so dark and depressing. What do we do with that? Well, one of the things that I think that is so helpful, if you think about the way this psalm ends is it reminds us, as men and women of faith, that we don't always end our prayer times with a spiritual awakening. We don't. You know, Mike Mason, he says, the true believer does not always rise from his knees full of encouragement and fresh hope. There are times when one may remain down in the dumps and yet still have prayed well. Again, I don't know about you, that gives me incredible freedom because I don't feel like I always pray and then I just, God broke through the clouds and I've got a new perspective. Sometimes we don't. And this season of, of disorientation of winter, it doesn't operate on our timetable, you know? You can't just come out of spiritual winter because you, you read your Bible more. You grabbed a hold of some spiritual truth. You see, struggling well, and that's what we're talking about today. Struggling well is not a formula, but a journey. It's a journey. And maybe you're in the room and you've been in a season of winter, of, of disorientation for a long time. It's one of the things we see here is you can be a person of faith and you can struggle for a long time. How long did this psalmist struggle? We don't know. We know David in Psalm 13 he struggled with God's absence enough to say, how long, how long, four times, how long, oh Lord? You see, sometimes we're in this place for a long time, but there is great hope here. And you're saying, finally, or maybe you're saying, where? It's like, I, I don't see any hope. You know, the psalm ends, darkness is my closest friend. Let me tell you just a few reasons for hope and then I'm going to apply this uh, for us. When we are in the darkness of disorientation, again, I want to be clear, it is not evidence of a lack of faith. And the reason that is hopeful is some of you are feeling so distant from God and you're wondering, man, is this just a sign of sin, of spiritual mature, immaturity in my life? Now, it could be a result of sin that you feel distant, but it wasn't for this guy. And it wasn't for Job, and it wasn't for David in Psalm 13. And the great temptation, again, it's for us to just try to fix it, you know? It's just like, man, if you just read the Bible more, if you just pray, if you just walk in the Spirit, if you just trust God, then you wouldn't feel this way. And when we think that, when we say that, we sound a whole lot like Job's friends, You see, sometimes you can be deep in the woods of disorientation and have done nothing wrong. 
And again, for some of you, that falls flat. For those of you who are in the woods now, that can be a life-saving truth to grab hold of. That when you go through these seasons, it's not because you just need to be stronger, have more faith. This is part of the journey. The second reason for hope here is that when you're in darkness, darkness of disorientation, you're not alone. In fact, not only are you not alone, I would say to you that you're in good company when you find yourself here. Because that's exactly where this psalmist was. And not just him, but many people throughout the Bible who say, how long, O Lord? And not just the Bible, but men and women throughout church history. Think about this. This psalm was not just a poem that was recited. This was a song. Can you imagine singing this? How depressing would that be? I feel like if we sang the words, it, you like walk out of here like that was the weirdest and most depressing church service that I've ever been in. But listen, th these words were sung, were identified by men and women of faith all throughout history who've expressed how they felt where their hearts were through these words. You see, the great temptation for all of us, when we are here, in disorientation, the great temptation is to, to believe that you are alone. And that's not true. You may feel alone, but you're not alone. This is great hope here. And finally, another reason for hope is that in times of disorientation and in the dark, God is doing more than you realize. This psalmist he had no idea that the cry from his heart would be recorded in Holy Scripture and would encourage people for thousands and thousands of years. You see, during disorientation, this is true of your experience of mine, God is always up to more than you can see, always. And if you stay with God... God is doing something in you and through you that you would not believe more beautiful than you can imagine. Now, how do, we, how do we apply this to our lives? I think the biggest thing we can take away, the most important truth that we can absorb today is that God wants the mess. That again, this is so powerful to think that in our Bibles, preserved for us, we have Psalm 88. <laughs> this man who's losing it, and he cries out to God in ways that we feel like are disrespectful, and, and yet God says, that is Scripture. That is my... I mean, just <laughs> let, that, let that sit on you for a minute. God did not say, I don't want that in my Bible. God did not say, I don't want to be associated with that man. No, it's here. And what does that say about God? What does that say about the human experience? And, and here's where it becomes personal. Why does God want the mess? Why? God wants your mess. God wants the mess because God wants wants me. 
want you guys to understand this, that, that God doesn't just want you to be angry and depressed and sad, you know, just, just so you can do that. God wants you. He wants your heart. You see, why does God want you to pour out your heart to him even when it's filled with darkness and doubt? Because God wants you, the real you. And for some of you, you know, maybe you've been in church for a while, but you've never really believed this to be true. And today, for maybe the first time, you lay hold of this truth that God does not want your religious observance more than he wants you. First and foremost, he wants your heart. And maybe you're in the room today or you're watching online and you have never been a Christian. You never believed in Jesus ever. And part of the reason why is that the God that you've heard about is a God who's way more interested in your behavior, in your external compliance to some standard of what should be. And today, you hear something different, which I believe is true and it's taught in the Bible, which is that God wants you. And maybe some, again, today, you're in a season of profound disorientation. And maybe you feel shame about that. Maybe you feel apathy about that. You just feel kind of numb. But God today is inviting you to bring your heart, to bring what is in you, not what ought to be in you, but to say, God, this is, this is where I'm at. So how do we do this practically? As we end today, I, I want to just give you three steps that help us bring our mess to God. Because when we think about, okay, God wants the mess and I want to bring it to him, how do we do that? Well, the psalmist, he shows us this pattern where first we cry honestly. When we are in disorientation, we pour out our heart. We say, God, this is what I'm feeling. We tell the truth. And when the sludge comes up, let it come up. God wants the mess, again, he can handle it. We, we, we bring it to him. And then secondly, we plead desperately. We see this all throughout the Psalms. This cry of begging God, God, would you please, would you change my circumstances? Or God, would you help me understand this? Or God, would you help me know you're close? God, give me the strength to walk through this. Help me trust you. So whatever is in your heart, not what ought to be in your heart, but you just bring it and you, and you plead. And then thirdly, we stay with God. In the confusion and in pain, like the psalmist, we stay. And instead of saying, stay with God, I could have said, hang on for dear life. Because that's what this feels like sometimes, isn't it? Those of you who walked with God for a while, there are seasons, there are times in your life where it feels like all you can do is just hang on. And that's okay. Stay with God, keep bringing your heart to him and he's doing something in you you would never believe. And so as we end today, I wanna to give us a moment just to do this together as a community of faith, just to, to pray and to, to bring our hearts to God. And I know that some of you, this is where you are. You know, I mean, you are in this wintry season that, that, we're, that Psalm 88 talks about. And there's others of you that are not, and that's okay. I mean, that's great if you don't find yourself in this season. But here's what's true. There are people around you that are exactly where we're talking about today. More than you realize, 
way more than you realize. There are people in your life, there are people on your row today who are experiencing disorientation and they don't know where God is. And so if that's where you are today, if you say, you know what, I'm, I'm not there, then, then during these few moments, I want to invite you to pray for the people around you who are struggling and that you would pray for them. God, would you help them to cry honestly and to plead desperately and to stay with you? God, give them the grace to hang on. And so let me just give us a moment again to pray. Bring your heart to God, not what ought to be in you, but what's in you and just say, God, this is where I'm at. And maybe these three phrases, maybe they help you or maybe you just come where you are. You say, God, this is where I'm at. But let's be honest before him and I'll close this here in just a moment. Let's pray. Father, we come to you in this moment trusting that you hear us. Trusting that, God, you do want our hearts. And Lord, I pray for anyone in this room today and in our church. I pray for anyone who feels the way of Psalm 88. God, would you Please meet them where they are. Give them the courage to be honest, to plead, and to hang on. God, thank you that Jesus went into the ultimate disorientation. 
as he died on the cross for our sins so we could be reconciled to you. And that is the ultimate statement of our value, of how much we matter. God, help us to not believe some lie that what you're really after is our external compliance or behavior. God, you want us. And God, would you show us all the implications of what that means? So God, now we receive this and we respond to you in Jesus' name. We worship you. Amen.